Good morning, everyone. It is uh, my privilege to get to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, And you can be turning in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. I just wanted to share uh, some of my highlights from the respite night. I got to serve there. Um, I led a few songs at the beginning with a wonderful collection of random instruments that I pulled out of a closet. Uh, Most of them fit in the category of noisemakers. But as a former music teacher, I could tell you all of those instruments' names, and they do have real names. Uh, And then I was described by some people later as just a wandering minstrel as I walked around the the building with my guitar, uh, but got to have some fun with one of the young men who was there. He wanted to learn a couple chords on guitar. So I taught him a couple chords on guitar, and he made sure that his buddy also learned those chords too. Uh, So it was a great time to get to serve those families, and I would really encourage you, as Pastor Kevin said, uh, it is a wonderful opportunity to get to serve others, and really the qualifications to be a buddy are just to know how to be a friend. Um, So all of us are able to do that and to serve in that way. Well, I want to turn to our time in God's Word. Uh, As I was driving earlier this week. I heard a brief clip of an interview uh, where the folks on the interview were talking about what makes for a good story, or how do you tell a story well? And it was described in this interview as that something surprising happens, but when you look back from the end, it all makes sense. And that's all the interview that I heard, because it doesn't take very long to drive from here to Safeway. Uh, So I learned later when kind of looking into this, because that just stuck out to me as I was preparing uh, the sermon for this morning, that this, that idea actually comes from some ancient thinking. Uh, It it comes from ideas that Aristotle appears to maybe have first said of that the story should be surprising yet inevitable. Without a surprise, the story is boring. Uh, If I walked up here and told a story about how, well, so this morning, I got in my car, I drove over here, and I showed up at church. Unless I didn't regularly show up at church, that wouldn't be a particularly interesting story, would it? But on the other hand, if I told a story like, so I got in my car this morning and there was a potato sitting in the driver's seat, and then I drove to church and went to church, and that was the end of the story, that would just be confusing. Because what is, what is going on with this unexpected thing? Well, as we read the Bible, as we read God's word, we find that God often does the unexpected. And a helpful exercise when, when we're reading the Gospels, or really any passage of Scripture, is to imagine that you're one of the people who's hearing or experiencing these events for the first time. Because we get to look back knowing how it ends. We get to look back knowing what happened. But many times, for those who were experiencing those events as they were, being, as they were happening, it's unexpected. We don't, they don't know what's going to happen. And at the time of his ministry, Jesus was doing a lot of things that were unexpected, that were surprising. And we're going to see a few of those in our passage today. Um, but before I read the passage for us, I want to pray uh, that God would help us as we spend this time together in his word. Father, we are grateful 
that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, that you have given us um, this message from you uh, describing the work that you've done for your glory and for our salvation. And God, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that are receptive to listen, hearts that desire to worship you through this time of hearing from you. And Father, we ask for all of this, uh, knowing that we can't do it on our own, but need the help of your spirit. So ask for your spirit to help us, teach us, and to speak to us as we open your word together. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Just a few notes of review before we dig into our passage. Um, From the very first verse of the Gospel of Mark, the author, Mark, is really focused on demonstrating that Jesus has authority. We're going to see some of that in our passage today. We saw some of that in our passage last week. Uh, Last week with Pastor Jay, we saw an encounter where Jesus performed a miraculous healing At the same time, disrupting some religious leaders by boldly claiming to have the authority to forgive sins. And we're going to see some more of that today. Uh, We're going to see some continuations of the same theme of some conflict, some some encounters with religious leaders. Uh, We're going to see Jesus facing opposition, disagreement. And at the same time, we're going to see Jesus claiming authority that is his and is his alone. So in today's text, we're going to see three situations where Jesus does something unexpected for a religious leader of his day. Uh, These stories each include a question of why? Why are you doing this? And the answers to those questions reveal the purpose of Jesus's mission, the newness of his ministry, and the extent of his authority. Because our text is a little bit lengthy this morning, I'm going to read each story one at a time and talk about it. So I'm going to start by reading for us Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, our first story that we have. He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this story begins with Jesus back out by the sea, Uh, the Sea of Galilee in particular, Jesus having traveled around that region performing uh, his ministry and teaching as, as he did. He's teaching the crowds, and throughout his ministry, there were crowds of people that came to Jesus, but his goal wasn't to attract a crowd. His purpose wasn't popularity. And we know that because if his purpose was popularity, Jesus wouldn't have done what he did next. 
Because in the midst of this crowd of people, Jesus sees one person, one particular person, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, a tax collector. Levi is also known as Matthew. Uh, he is the, later in his life, he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. But at this point in his life, he's not a respected apostle. He's not respected as one of the authors of the four Gospels. He's an unexpected person for Jesus to call as a disciple because he is a tax collector. At the time, tax collectors were honestly pretty justifiably despised. Uh, They were despised as dishonest, as greedy collaborators with the occupying Romans. Uh, Because tax collectors, they worked with the enemy. They were seen as betrayers. Levi was a Jewish man, but he was working with and for the Romans. He was taking money from his own people under the authority of Rome. Uh, Because you see, tax collectors, they had a lot of liberty to take however much they wanted. Uh, Their own income came from the extra that they took on top of whatever Rome demanded. So if Rome said that you owed $10 and Levi, the tax collector, wanted to make sure that he could go buy bread on his way home, he'd tell you, oh, Rome actually says that you owe $15 or maybe 20 if you looked like you might be carrying around a little bit of extra cash. So many of these tax collectors were quite greedy. They, They earned this reputation of being despised. And just a couple examples of how despised tax collectors were at the time. Tax collectors were not allowed to provide testimony in court because we just know that they're going to lie. They're tax collectors. Come on. Another thing, if a tax collector entered a house, that house and all the people in it would become unclean. In other words, if you're a tax collector, we just can't be around you. And a third one, which I found particularly surprising. Uh, In the Jewish teaching at the time, you were allowed to lie to a tax collector if if that would allow you to protect your property. In other words, one of the Ten Commandments, that just doesn't count if it's a tax collector. (laughs) But beyond the general contempt for tax collectors that, that we see, since Levi's beside the sea, he was likely collecting taxes from fishermen in particular, collecting taxes on the fish that they, bought, uh, that they caught and sold. And I'm sure that really made this call popular among those fishermen that were following Jesus as disciples. You know, I can just imagine Peter and John being like, that guy, he just stole our money two days ago. What are you doing, Jesus? But Jesus calls Levi to follow him. And he follows. He rose and followed. Uh, following this, this following the exact same pattern that we saw in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus called some of his other disciples. Levi got up, left his tax booth, and followed Jesus. And then Levi has a party. And who's at that party? Well, more tax collectors and sinners. Uh, This word here describing those who were flagrant violators of the law, uh, who were social outcasts. Uh, These people in this category of sinners were those who were seen as having complete, total disregard for the Mosaic law. They were seen as unclean and, and just generally those who you wouldn't hang around with. And especially 
if you're a religious leader. But in this story, Jesus is portrayed not just as a guest at the party, but actually as the host of the party. Jesus didn't show up at the wrong party. He didn't walk into the wrong house. He didn't accidentally type in the wrong address to his Google Maps as he was looking for where to go. He's the host. He's the one who's welcoming these tax collectors, these sinners, into his presence and eating with them. And I want to just imagine the, the response, the response of these tax collectors and sinners as, as they're at this party with Jesus. I'm sure knowing exactly who Jesus is, a, a religious leader, some, uh, and, and they're here. And imagine their response of, me? Me? You want, you want me to be here? You want to eat with me? You're letting me be at this party? Nobody invites me to parties. Why are you inviting me to this party? But Jesus says to them, I do want you to be here. I know exactly who you are. I know exactly what you've done. I want you to stay. I want you to eat with me. This isn't a trap. You don't need to fear. Just eat and enjoy. And I'm sure that was surprising, unexpected to these people who lived on the margins of society, to those who no one else would spend time with. But these tax collectors and sinners weren't the only ones surprised by the unexpected invitation that Jesus gives. Because we see in our text that the Pharisees have a problem with the guest list too. Asking, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, what good religious leader would hang out with such unclean people? Or, or, or maybe in a few less words, what's he doing with those people? And this is the first appearance of the Pharisees in Mark's gospel. And so who are these Pharisees? I I know that many of us may be familiar with the Pharisees, but a few things that we know uh, about them. In terms of their history, the Pharisees likely grew out of a group called the Hasidim uh, that started around 100 BC during the time of Greek rule over the region of Judea. Um, These people were focused on rejecting Greek influence and returning to obedience to the Mosaic law. Uh, and th- th- that group likely turned into the Pharisees over time. And this, this name for them, Pharisee, is similar to a Hebrew word for separatists. And this name was given to them because the Pharisees strictly followed dietary and purity laws uh, that kept them separate from the common people. Uh, because their big goal was obedience, obedience to the Mosaic law. And they did so by creating what what has come to be called a fence around the Torah, which is another word for the Mosaic law. The Pharisees developed oral traditions or uh, oral laws, which are referred to sometimes in scripture as the traditions of the elders, uh, so that Jews who desire to be faithful to the law can know exactly how to obey God in every situation. Um, the, the Mosaic law, what we find in the first five books of scripture, doesn't answer the question of what do I do in exactly every single small situation, but the Pharisees made sure that you knew. 
as just an example, maybe an example of this that doesn't come from the law you'll see in a moment, but maybe makes a little bit more sense to us. Let's say that you're a kid and you're told by your parent, don't get in the pool. Well, what does that mean? Like, don't get completely in the pool? Don't, 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 you know, do a cannonball into the pool? Does that mean don't hang your legs over the edge? Does that mean don't even stick your little toe in the pool? What does it mean? Well, the Pharisees would have answered that question, not by saying, well, this is what we mean by don't get in the pool, but by building a fence around the pool about five feet back so that, you know, you're just not even going to be able to get close to getting in the pool. For the Pharisees, the question wasn't, how far can I go before I've broken the law? It was putting that, that fence, that boundary, a few steps back to make sure that we are going to be faithful to what God desires. And our first thought of the Pharisees might be that they're terrible, awful hypocrites. And while they were quite legalistic in their approach to the law, the Pharisees at the time were actually somewhat popular and prominent in that society because of their pursuit of obedience to the law. They were people who wanted to please God with their lives, and others saw that. Uh, Jesus and the Pharisees were actually on the same page in a lot of theological topics, uh, possibly more than any of the other Jewish groups at the time. Jesus wasn't opposed to the Pharisees because of their pursuit of holiness, but because of the legalistic way that they pursued holiness, focused almost entirely on the externals, focused almost entirely on what others could see. And as I was getting the notes that you have ready for this morning, I had a moment in my office where I realized, you know, I think I might have been a Pharisee if I was there at the time. Uh, you know how there's all those bullet points on the side? Well, I noticed when I was working on the, the notes that one of those little arrows was not the same size as all the other ones. So I fixed it for all of you who might also be Pharisees. <laughs> but back to the Pharisees' question. What good religious leader would hang out and eat with such unclean people? Well, Jesus would. Jesus would. Why? Because like a physician caring for sick people, he is a savior who is here for sinners. Jesus' purpose is to call lost sinners home, to bring back those who know that they are not righteous and recognize their need for a Savior. And when Jesus says to the Pharisees, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, I think there's a little bit of irony in that statement. Because the Pharisees, despite what they think, aren't actually righteous. They're just self-righteous. Jesus is saying to them, I didn't come for those who think themselves too good to need a savior. I came for those who recognize their need. My purpose is to call home those who know that they're lost and want to come home. That's why Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and sinners because they recognize their need. And they respond to this invitation to come home.
I want to turn now to our second story. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 18 of Mark chapter 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So in this second story, we see that Jesus meets another questioning challenge to his ministry. In that, question, in that why question of why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Because, you know, religious, pious people like the Pharisees are fasting. What, what are you doing, Jesus? And there isn't necessarily hostility in this question yet. There will be hostility to Jesus. That is coming only about 12 verses away. But at this point, it might be a question of curiosity of, wait, so we see these religious people doing this. What are you doing? Because the Pharisees, they actually fasted twice a week on Mondays and on Thursdays. Uh, They did so in a pursuit of piety, of self-consecration, keeping themselves holy for God. Uh, And John's disciples appear to have had a practice of fasting as well, and they were likely fasting in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And none of those are bad reasons. Jesus isn't against fasting. But Jesus replies that now is not the time. Now is not the time for fasting. It's a time for joyous feasting and celebration. It's a time for celebration because he is here doing something new. And in this, uh, in this reply, Jesus speaks of himself as the bridegroom. Uh, the bridegroom in a wedding. And at that time, weddings were even more elaborate events than they are now, uh, which may be surprising to say, but they were even more elaborate than they are now. Weddings in, in that time could last up to a week and were a week filled with celebration, with feasting, with joy and celebration. But I want us to imagine what would happen if you were at a wedding being served the meal, and you said to the bridegroom, oh, I'm actually fasting right now. Thank you, but I'm actually fasting right now. I'd like to think I would have been more holy than this, but if I was at my own wedding a few years ago and someone told me that, I'd probably be thinking thoughts along the lines of, you know, I paid the caterer for the number of people that are here. If you were going to be fasting, like, what are you here? Why? <laughs> I just, I don't know. <laughs> Jesus is saying, though, in this statement, that his presence is something that should bring joy. 
A day is coming, he says, when his disciples will fast. He says that one day he will be taken away, probably speaking there of his ascension into heaven. And again, Jesus isn't against fasting. But he's saying that fasting right now is an inappropriate response to the presence of the Messiah, the arrival of salvation, because something new is here, breaking into what has been. And Jesus continues speaking two metaphors that explain the newness of what God is doing. Uh, he first talks about patching a garment uh, and how if you patch, if you sew a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, the patch can tear away. Uh, speaking here of how certain fabrics shrink when you wash them. I'm not sure which ones those are, so sometimes I'm terrified to do laundry. <laughs> But from what I'm told, if you were to sew brand new unshrunk fabric onto an existing garment, the first time it's washed, that patch would shrink. It would pull away from the old garment, creating a larger hole. What once was a fixable hole in this garment is now a destroyed garment. And then Jesus also talks about filling wine skins. In ancient times, wine was stored in animal skins. And as wine ferments, it creates gases that would cause the skins to expand uh, and stretch. And once those skins have been stretched, they reach a point where they can't stretch anymore. Uh, they reach a point where they start to become somewhat brittle. And uh, so if you were to put new wine in those old wine skins that have already been stretched or brittle, that new wine, when it begins to ferment, would still create gases. And then because those skins cannot stretch anymore, instead they would burst. What once was good wine ends up spilled on the ground. And these two metaphors explain the newness of what God is doing. Jesus is the Messiah, inaugurating a new era of salvation that cannot be contained in the existing traditions. What Jesus is saying here is that his ministry is something new. He's telling these people who are hearing him, if you try to mix the new and the old in the wrong way, it won't work. And we actually see in scripture the, the early church trying to figure this out over a number of years. How, do, how does the newness of, G, of the ministry of Jesus fit together with what we have in the old covenant? And, and we see at times that people were doing so in a way that doesn't work. Uh, we can think of Paul's conflict with those who are sometimes referred to as the Judaizers, uh, those who are trying to uh, force Gentile converts to adopt Jewish practices. And we see that that is not the way that the old and the new mix together. Uh, the old covenant, the Old Testament is not irrelevant, but it's all interpreted in light of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus is not here as a reformer. He's not here calling for a return to the law like the Pharisees were. Jesus is also not here to prepare the people for something else that's coming later, like the ministry of John the Baptist. No, Jesus is here as the Messiah, the promised one, come to fulfill the law and establish a new era of salvation. 
Again, that doesn't mean that everything that came before is useless or insignificant. But Jesus is doing something new. It's not just a patch. It can't be contained by what has been before. It's an unexpected change. Something new that should be received and celebrated with great joy. I want to turn now to our last of the three stories. I'm going to read for us, picking up in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he, again Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So in this story, Jesus faces yet another challenge. Yet another question of why. Why are you doing this? Why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Charging Jesus and his disciples with violating the Sabbath. And this is a big deal. Because no good Jewish religious leader would do that. Sabbath observance was a key cultural identifier for Jews because that's something that distinguished them from all other people. No one else kept the Sabbath. So observing the Sabbath was a big deal at the time. Uh, the Old Testament law was clear that the Sabbath involved resting from work. But the definition of exactly what work means was not specifically laid out. Uh, this was another area where the Pharisees showed up with a good list for us. Uh, they actually had developed a list of 39 categories that constituted work and were therefore forbidden on the Sabbath. Uh, in this situation, the likely charge that they're making against uh, Jesus' disciples is that by plucking the grain, they were reaping or harvesting in a field. And uh, I... I read this list of 39 things after having prepared your notes. So in your notes, it says harvesting. But for the Pharisees among you, harvesting and reaping are different categories in the list. So it's actually reaping that this one fits into not harvesting, if, if you're concerned about that. Jesus' answer to them, though, is, is more important than their list. Jesus answers them first with a question. Have you never read? Which, honestly, is quite a silly question to ask an expert in the Mosaic Law. Have you never read? It'd be like asking an expert in English literature, have you heard of Shakespeare? Well, of course! <laughs> what expert in English literature hasn't heard of Shakespeare? In the same way, what Pharisee hasn't read this story about King David? Jesus here is poking them. He's trying to get their attention, trying to tell them that they've misunderstood. They've missed the point. 
that you need to listen because I'm going to tell you what this story means. So Jesus cites here a precedent in King David acting to meet a need despite that action being forbidden. Uh, this is recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, you could turn there if you'd like, but I'm just going to summarize the story for us. Um, so this situation in King David's life takes place after he's been anointed as king, uh, but while Saul is still king of Israel. And if you're the king of Israel and someone who's not your son is anointed as king, you probably have a little bit of a problem with that. And Saul has a big problem with that. Uh, So Saul is trying to hunt down David to get rid of him. And so David's on the run. Uh, He has a group of soldiers with him and these soldiers are hungry, as soldiers get when they're on the run. So Jesus, or not Jesus, David comes to the tabernacle and he speaks with the high priest, uh, asking if there's any food there for him and his men. And there is some bread in the tabernacle, but there's a problem with this bread. Because in the tabernacle, uh, the priests were supposed to keep what's called holy bread, or the bread of the presence, kept before the Lord at all times. Uh, This is described in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24. This bread was only to be eaten by the priests. But David's soldiers aren't priests. And at the same time, there's no other bread. So, in order to meet his soldiers' need for food, the high priest gives David the holy bread. The soldiers eating the bread was forbidden. It was not allowed, but it was necessary to meet that need. Now, the argument Jesus is making in referencing this story is that if David can do something forbidden to meet a need, how much more the greater son of David, the Messiah. Jesus isn't referencing this story as an excuse for his action, saying, oh, well, David did something that wasn't allowed and he got away with it. Jesus is citing this as a precedent, an example of something that was right, saying that David's actions here and the high priest's actions were correct. And so are his. But beyond just explaining this precedent, Jesus also talks about how this precedent illustrates the purpose of the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees had missed the point of the Sabbath by turning it into a burden, obscuring God's original intent that the Sabbath be a blessing. Because the Sabbath, God did not give the Sabbath as a rule to follow, as a box to check, as a task to complete, or a a detail to manage. Legalistic obedience to the Sabbath misses the point of the Sabbath. God gave the Sabbath to humanity for renewal, for rest for the body, for worship for the soul, for the purpose of blessing humanity, enhancing our well-being, And we don't have time today to get into a full theology and practice of the Sabbath, but we see in God's gift of the Sabbath that rest is a good thing. We aren't designed to work all the time, to be constantly occupied and active. But at the same time, observing the Sabbath doesn't mean taking a day to do nothing. 
Um, Observing the Sabbath means spending time on a regular basis focused on things that bring rest, that bring well-being, providing space for you to worship God. Uh, And it's not going to be the same things for everyone. Uh, For some people, practicing Sabbath might involve going on a camping trip. For me, that would not be the case. (laughs) I'd prefer to stay in a hotel. (laughs) Uh, There was a book that one of my seminary professors assigned to us to read, which was a really smart decision on the point of a seminary professor to have seminary students read a book about Sabbath um, that really in just two sentences summarized the attitude of the Sabbath. Cease from what is necessary and embrace that which gives life. In other words, to take time to stop doing the things that need to get done, to have time and space to embrace that which gives life. And in particular, embracing God, who is the one who gives life. And you know, in Jesus explaining the purpose of the Sabbath, I think if he stopped at verse 27, the Pharisees actually might have been okay with it. If Jesus stopped with the statement that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, I think the Pharisees would have been on board with that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just speak of the purpose of the Sabbath. He also speaks as the one in charge of the Sabbath. Concluding with another bold claim, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. In this statement, Jesus is claiming authority over something established directly by God. God made the Sabbath. He is the one who gets to define it. And Jesus says, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is in charge of it. He gets to define it. This bold claim is similar in nature to the claim that Jesus made in the passage that we looked at last Sunday. Uh, The claim that Jesus made in Mark chapter 2 verse 10, where he claims the authority to forgive sins. And And this both being an unexpected claim of authority. In the passage earlier in Mark chapter 2, the question to Jesus, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus replies, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The question in this passage here, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus replies, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I want to turn now to the section at the end of your notes that's under the heading responding to God's word and think together really about two questions uh, under, under these two questions. The first one, what are your expectations of how God works? How do you expect God to work? Because you see, God doesn't work according to our expectations. God doesn't do what we want him to do. God calls unexpected people. He does things in unexpected ways. And throughout the four Gospels, we see countless situations, countless encounters where people were so busy looking for something that met their own expectations 
that they missed what God was doing right in front of them. And may that not be us. May we not be those who are so focused on our own desires, our own plans, our own ideas of how this should work out, that we miss the work of God in our midst. Because these three stories here that we looked at together aren't even the most unexpected things that Jesus did. The most unexpected thing that Jesus did was dying on the cross. Because kings, kings don't die. Saviors don't suffer. It's unexpected. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that the cross is seen by many as foolishness, as something that just doesn't make sense. But the cross is the wise plan of God for his glory and for our salvation. So again, what are your expectations of how God works? And then that second question, have you responded to Jesus's call? Because Jesus invites all to come to him, regardless of their background. There's no one too righteous to need a savior. There's no one too sinful to be beyond saving. There's no one too righteous who's figured it all out, who no longer needs to come to Jesus every day for help. And there's no one too sinful to ever be outside of the reach of the grace of God. Because Jesus calls the worst of sinners. Jesus calls skeptical, confrontational, self-righteous Pharisees. We can think there of the Apostle Paul. And Jesus calls everyone in between to come to him. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, Jesus Christ says, come to me and live. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is our Savior Jesus on a mission to save the lost and with the authority to bring us home. I'd invite us to stand together as we close our time together with a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful that you saw us in our need and didn't leave us on our own to figure it out, but that you sent your son, Jesus, our Savior. Father, I ask as we think about these stories where we see your son, Jesus, doing things that were unexpected, that we would frame and shape our expectations about you and the ways that you work around what you've said in your word. That we would not be so focused on our own desires, our own dreams, that we miss what you're up to. God, we know that we can only do that through the transforming help of your Holy Spirit. So we ask for your help in that to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts and minds that are ready to listen to you. We trust that you will do that as we humble ourselves before you. 
And we pray and ask these things in the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.